Hey, listeners, today we're revisiting a 2020 interview I did with George Werner, then the Secretary of Education for Liberia, along with Steve Cantrell, who was then with Bridge International Academies. Our discussion tackles the enormous and daring experiment taken by the Liberian government, in which they cooperated with private education providers like Bridge International to provide education at scale to the country's students. This conversation about Bridge is particularly interesting given New Globe Education, which was formerly known as Bridge International, and their recent expansion and success in Kenya. It's a fascinating story about a very foreign educational setting with a lot of upside potential in the future, and I think our listeners will find it very interesting. Welcome to The Report Card, where we evaluate efforts to improve the lives of families, schools, and students. On this edition, we're going to go far afield from our typical ground of American schools to Liberia. In 2015, the Liberian school system was in shambles. Following years of civil war and a 2014 Ebola outbreak that caused a nationwide school shutdown, radical action was needed to improve the country's schools at scale. Then President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf charged then-Education Minister George Werner with doing just that. And in 2016, Werner implemented the Partnership Schools for Liberia, which is now known as the Liberian Education Advancement Program, or LEAP. That program allowed eight independent operators, most prominently the Kenya-based Bridge International Academies, to run a limited number of Liberian primary schools. How did this go? Well, a three-year study commissioned by the Liberian government to gauge LEAP's effectiveness was released. The results showed significant improvement in learning outcomes, with the biggest gains coming from schools managed by Bridge International Academies. But those results have been challenged, and they're worth discussing. So on this episode, I brought on George Werner and Dr. Steve Cantrell, who is Bridge's Vice President of Measurement Evaluation, to discuss the findings, as well as what they might mean moving forward for education in the developing world. George, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nat. Thank you, Matt. For an American audience that's not familiar with Liberian education and Liberian schools, I'd like to give us a little groundwork. What is education like in Liberia, and how does it differ from what an American audience might expect. George, you were sort of heading up education in Liberia, so why don't you kick us off? So thank you. For those who don't know Liberia well, Liberia is on the west coast of Africa. It was founded by free slaves from the U.S. and has been a bastion of freedom, so to speak, until it ran into trouble in the last 30 years. And long civil war that went on for 14 years. And after that, we have various peace agreements that at the end of which we elected Africa's first female president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. So four years ago, after the end of Ebola, I became Liberia's Minister of Education. And I got to the ministry, I inherited an educational system in the state of emergency and crisis. 35% of young women and 21% of our young men could not read a single sentence. Only 39% of women 
across the country had completed primary school. So coming out of a brutal civil war and a severe outbreak of Ebola, many of our schools were destroyed and many teachers had been killed. As the fourth poorest country in the world, our education budget was severely constrained. Then I ran into a broken institution prediction that it would take children in the developing world as long as 100 years to catch up with their counterparts in the developed world. But I refused to accept that Liberia had to wait a century for our children to succeed. I knew we couldn't afford to play it safe, leaving millions of children behind. So I embarked on a bold experiment to disrupt the status quo, jumpstart a circle of positive change, and leapfrog improved learning outcomes. I was told about Bridge International Academy. So I went to see them in East Africa and I was wowed by what it did. I spoke to parents, I observed classes, and I came away saying, we have to do something new. We want a partnership with Bridge. And so the partnership schools for Liberia, a three-year pilot now known as LEAP, as you pointed out, was intended to leverage international expertise and funding to test innovative approaches and bolster our alien educational system. As a government, we, as you said, we chose six leading international providers, Bridge included, and two local providers to test new approaches for improving teaching and learning in our public schools. So this sets the stage, if you like, Matt, for why we did what we did. Yeah, so this was a bold experiment. You brought in outside operators, eight of them, to run schools in Liberia. Just as a picture of schools, you know, when we think of schools in America, we think of large, relatively nice buildings. We have class sizes in the 25 to 30 range. How does Liberian sort of baseline for schooling compare to that? When I left office, the Liberia is a little between four to five million in terms of population. Much of that is very young. When I left office, the school census showed that we had around 1.5 million children in school with approximately half a million children out of school. And in many areas where access has succeeded in bringing many kids to school, the student-to-teacher ratio is quite high. You have sometimes one to 100 or one to 65, one to 70. And you have, because of that, especially in the urban areas, you have double shift schools, triple shift schools. And sometimes school, their students spend a day, their school day is three hours because they have to go home for another group of students to come in. So this was the picture. And in many places, you have leaking roofs. There were no desks and chairs. There were livestock cohabitating classrooms with children. And it didn't look good for a safe learning environment. And this is why we thought this experiment could uh, disrupt the system, as, and it truly did. So there's certainly major differences on sort of the facilities and infrastructure part. One thing that I also want to get in here just on the front end, how was the human capital side of the equation? Is it easy to find qualified teachers in Liberia for these schools? Certainly with those higher ratios, even 100 children to one teacher, 
You need good teachers to make such a, a system run. So Liberia has good teachers, but they're too few. After the war, the available took over the classrooms as, t- as teachers. They were not trained. Many of them can neither read nor write, but they were there as babysitters, so to speak. So we lost many of our trained teachers. They were either killed or they fled. Many came to the United States and started a new life here. So we needed to train teachers in a very coherent way and place them in the classroom. And one of the successes of this program is that the providers bridge included, they have trained teachers and the teachers in the classroom are better prepared now and more accountable to the family. Steve Cantrell, I want to bring you in here. And you've been at Bridge for a few years now. Before that, you worked on the, the big MET project with the Gates Foundation. Liberia did a smart thing early on, and they set up an evaluation. And I guess the evaluation was going to go for one year and then three years, and we'll get to that. But can you just set up how they decided to set up their evaluation and what outcomes they were going to look at? Yeah, the, the evaluation was a really smart thing to do. When you embark on a bold experiment, too often the research is an afterthought, and that wasn't the case here. What they did was they said, okay, from, from the beginning, we are going to try to control the assignment of schools to these providers so that we're going to know at the end of this, with a, without a doubt, whether or not these schools added value, these providers added value to these schools, whether the kids were learning more. And so what they did is they ran eight small experiments. There were eight different providers. Right. And so the researchers, in partnership with the schools, developed a list from which half of the schools would be selected to be assigned to the providers and half would stay under the, the current uh, government operation. Then they tested the students and they observed classrooms and they did all the kinds of things that we would do to establish whether or not a school was, was doing what it should in terms of instructing and protecting kids. Right. So on the front end, just sort of random assignment between treatment and control. Yes. Okay. And, and, and really tight. And then what they did also exceptionally well, they tracked these kids wherever they went. And I imagine, I mean, that's difficult in the United States with all our <laughs> advanced computer systems and so forth. In Liberia, where you have hundreds of kids in different schools in different shifts, I imagine tracking these students is quite an ordeal. Extraordinary. And I, I think the, their success rate was like 96%. I mean, it would have passed any of our standards. So the, the data collection was very, very well done. So after the first RCT, the first year evaluation, George came to AEI, and, and we had a great event here. There's actually a video online that we'll post in the show notes. But some of the things that came out of that, I think, are remarkable and worth sort of setting up here so then we can talk about the, the three-year results. One is that the PSL students' reading and math gains were about 60% larger than the non-PSL public school students. The quality of instruction went up. One of the the big things that went up was that the likelihood that teachers would be present and teaching increased by 50%, which was a big deal because before that, teacher absenteeism averaged around 60%. So 60% of the time, about half the time, teachers were showing up. Can you give me a little context on how that could even be the case? I'm just trying to wrap my head around that. It's obviously a good improvement, but how do you have a school system where teacher absenteeism is so sky high? 
Yeah, George is closer to it than, than I am. But, but what I've observed from afar is that we had teachers who were on payroll who never, ever showed up. So this wasn't even an attendance problem. This was, this was just strictly fraud. Right. And so one of the first things the bridge had to do when, when we got there was first establish, are there bodies attached to these names on payroll? I mean, as ridiculous as that sounds, right. we, had to, we had to verify, is this really a teacher or is this just a paycheck going to line somebody's pockets who never intends to come and, and teach kids? Yeah. And so, I mean, that was, that, that was a little bit mind-blowing for me. So, you know, when you that get rid of like that— first order problem <laughs> yeah. to solve, right? Yeah, really. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that took care of some of it. I'll, I'll let George continue. We were mindful that the models we were partnering with, they had to work within the librarian context to be successful. So we required them to use librarian teachers and principals on the public payroll. And we did a payroll audit, as Steve pointed out, nationally. And we ended up deleting ghost names, as we call them, people who were either dead or remained on the payroll. Don't ask me who collected the paycheck. And that ended up, by estimation, uh, saving the Liberian government up to $3 million a year. That's a huge amount of money. And just to put that in context, George, you said that saved $3 million a year. For our listeners, it's yeah. important to understand that, and these numbers might be dated. I think they were from around when the, the one-year evaluation came out. But Liberian school spending was about $50 per student. Is that right? $50 per student, yes. <laughs> so the, $3 million, that's, that's, a, yes. that's a chunk of change. George, I want to ask you about sort of the interim period since this evaluation. You're no longer the education minister. Sirleaf is no longer the, the president. So there's been a change of government. But LEAP, well, it's been renamed, but the education minister kept the project going. Is that surprising? I mean, tell me about the change of government and how the program survived. So we anticipated the change. All of the partners, we all planned, we said, look, there is a new government coming. It's the first Liberia would experience in over 70 years, and we need to find a way to shepherd these reforms so that they don't fall apart totally. So together we created what we call an education delivery unit. And that education delivery unit had in it staff that were equipped to help the new government manage these new initiatives, the partnership schools included. So that helped. It still exists within the ministry, by the way. So that helped. And when the new government came over, they realized the value of the reform. In fact, they adapted the entire education reform strategy, which we call Liberia Getting to Best. And it's funded through the Global Partnership for Education, GPE, and the World Bank, too, is uh, contributing to that. So this was how we, we managed that transitional period. What changes might have been made to the program? I mean, the program was renamed from PSL to LEAP, which I will say is a more pronounceable acronym. But beyond that, were there, were there large or substantial changes to actually how PSL was running on the ground? Yes. One of the most significant ones is that it is expanding. The program is expanding. <laughs> in the second year, 
we went from 93 schools to about 200. And last I heard, because of the success of the program, the government is expanding it further. So it's expanding the program. We now have a three-year randomized evaluation report. Steve, what did the evaluation say and how would you characterize it for us? Yeah, I think the top line is that kids are learning more and faster. As you dig in, that's on average across the eight providers. I think the results, while, while positive, on average, weren't as strong as, as people had hoped for. But when you dig into that average, you see that really the, the group of eight providers separated into really two subgroups, one where the kids were learning the same as government schools, and that consisted of three of the providers, the other where kids were learning you know, roughly twice as fast as the kids in the government schools. Okay, um, so a, across providers, we had some providers that were keeping pace and others who were moving twice as fast. Real quick, yeah. are the ones that were keeping pace the big ones? Or I'm just wondering how the population of students in the experimental or treatment group varied across these groups. Yeah, it was roughly split. Okay, great. Yeah. How big of a difference are we talking about? Even, even if we just talk about on average... Was that a measurable effect, even though about half the group didn't seem to be making much progress at all? Well, if you think about it this way, this, this would be as if the kids in a five-day week got nine days of instruction at these schools where they were outperforming the government schools. Right. In the other three, they show up five days, they get five days worth. So they weren't, they weren't being harmed right. versus what they would have received. Okay. This is going to get a little technical, but we're going to keep it. We're going to keep it light here. There's a, a difference between in these evaluations between the intent to treat effects and the treatment on the treated. And Steve, this is why you, you go to graduate school. Can you explain what the difference is between these two folks to our listeners at home who are probably not taking notes? Yes, exactly. Yeah. In, in some ways, this is, this is arcane research methodology, but there's a simple way to think about it. Think about treatment on the treated as you get a prescription and you take the pill. So there was, you are following the prescription. Think of intent to treat as just receiving the prescription. Some of the people take the pill, some of them don't. And so you've got this, you've got this split. In research, what they do, the reason why they look at intent to treat, because it sounds silly to practitioners a lot. But there's a smart reason to do it, and it's, it's to track the unintended consequences of an intervention. Or, you know, let's say the, the regimen is just too difficult, you know, half the kids drop out. Well, if that happened, you'd want to know because this isn't going to be the solution for everybody. And right. so I'm a fan of, of looking at it both ways. So what's the difference between the attempt to treat and the treatment on the treated students in the LEAP program? Remember, the intent to treat includes students who had initially been on the school rolls the year prior, but never actually showed up at the, at the school. Right. And so... And, and they so, never took their prescription. Never took the prescription. Right. There's a question in, in my mind of whether or not there was really an intent to treat at that point. We know that roughly 20% of the kids every year 
go to a different school. So there's so there's at least a fifth of those kids who probably Please, never intended to go on. Yeah, go ahead, Jordan. Let, yeah, let me add this, that the policy, the admissions policy for the Liberian public school system is first come, first serve. Yeah, so that, that so, is helpful. And then there, there was another thing that was happening at this time, too, to understand kind of why the difference is. Sure. Schools were overcrowded. Yeah, Minister Werner said, hey, we need to solve this. If we, if we want to give the kids a full-strength education, that doesn't happen when you have 100 kids in the classroom with a single teacher. It's just, it's impossible to manage. Yes, that's, it's uh, hard to maintain change. Yeah, because, and these classes aren't any bigger than our typical classroom in, in the U.S. either. So you've got kids sitting on the floor. Right. And it's, you know, it's just hard to take notes sitting on the floor. The other thing is, is it's hard to get a full day of instruction when you only have three or four hours in the school. Right. And so some of these school schedules to lengthen the school day meant that some of the kids had to go somewhere else to school. So when you when you're doing both those things simultaneously, it meant that that there were kids that were going to be displaced, and that was that uh, was sad. But it was also preserving the integrity of the education for all the kids that remained. And just to put again to contextualize this for an American audience, I think the limit on the class size that really made a big difference here was they wanted no more than 65 children in a classroom. Is yeah, that right? that's where it settled. Okay, so that's... Yes, that's correct, yes. So that's not, at least from our view, that is an astounding class size. Here, we're just limiting it to 65 and, and also asking them to go to all-day school. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Steve, back to the treatment on the treated effects. The kids who actually took the prescription, how well did they do? Yeah, they did much better than the students who didn't get the treatment. <laughs> and, and Perhaps this, not surprising. You, you, I do laugh, but, you know, again, I'm not trying to undermine the intent to treat analysis because right. I, I, th I think it's important. But if, if we're going to look at the promise of the program, it's important to pay special attention to those who actually receive the program. The differences, though, within the operators was really stark. And more so when you looked at the treatment untreated, you really saw this separation of the three whose, whose students performed you know, at where the government school students were performing and these other five where the kids were performing well beyond in most estimates at least two years more of instruction over those three years that, that they received. Okay, so the, the treatment on the treated effects are very large. The average treatment effects for everybody who got the prescription, the attempt to treat, are also positive, right? I mean, they are higher than the average. Yeah. About half as big. About half as big, which yeah. makes sense. Were there any effects for the control schools? The kids who didn't even get the prescription were never in the LEAP program or PSL? What was shocking, and we've actually seen this in the U.S. charter school studies, they call it a nearest neighbor effect. And here, what you see is the schools who are actually, they start to feel pressure. The theory is they start to feel pressure from schools that are in the program. You know, there might be a little bit of embarrassment. There might be just a little bit of encouragement. Wow, we didn't know our kids could do these kinds of things. What we saw in this study is the teachers at the control school started to show up more often. The kids started to show up more often. 
the kids' performance in the control schools incrementally increased at, at a rate higher than, than what had happened before. And so we, we saw the suggestions that, that these schools were trying harder. And that was encouraging. Didn't really make the paper, but I thought that was that was exciting. And, you know, again, echoes what we've seen here in some of the U.S. charter school studies. Well, I'll just put my bias on the table. I think competition actually is is good for a whole ecosystem. So it's it, it's nice to hear that, even if it's yeah. not something that you can establish strongly. George, do you see echoes of that in, in your experience, how PSL and, and LEAP may have had broader ramifications across public education in Liberia? Yes. And before I left, I took a tour of the country and I was in the communities. And you have to know that these kids are coming from families that are invested in the system. And when they return home, they share the information, the teachers, are their parents. And, and so you see this book. In the light of these results being out, I think we need now to delve into the data to understand exactly why these gains were made so that we can impact, you know, they can impact on learning for all children across Liberia and potentially provide lessons for other countries facing similar challenges. As you know, there are other countries that are learning from what happened in Liberia. So we need to look more at the data at the gains uh, to see, because I see the spillover effect into schools that were not particularly in the, in the treatment. So what has been the reaction, George, within Liberia to, let's call it the LEAP program, over time? I know that there has been some opposition from the equivalent of teachers union groups in Liberia. I have this quote that I'll just read for our audience by the president of the NTAL, which is a labor group that does not think much of the, the LEAP program. And they said, we, the civil society organizations, are partners in education and concerned Liberians will do all in our reach, affirmative with the laws and all other international instruments to resist this creeping monster, which is intent to destroy the agenda for quality public education. Pretty strong words. <laughs> I'm interested in how you would characterize the broader reaction in Liberia to the LEAP program. So in the beginning, we faced opposition. I had two years to reset everything about Liberia's public school system. And there were multiple things going on at once. This disruptive program was one, but there were other programs testing teachers across the country auditing payrolls to find people that were on payroll but were not showing up. And these things were controversial. The whole country was involved. And there were teachers, quite frankly, who were afraid that these reforms would take them off payroll justifiably or unjustifiably. And we didn't have the communications architecture to tell them that this wasn't true. So the International Teachers Union got ahead of us. And looking back now, things are calm. The communities understand the program, the teachers understand the program. And so it's hard to argue against the partnership because parents are seeing the results, teachers are seeing the results. There is more respectability now among the teaching core. And um, when I get back home, I'm going around again. I 
I will go to the platform areas of Liberia to see how the program is performing in those areas. But the program now is uh, is being accepted. I have to add that even politicians want the program in their district, and some have described it uh, as being discriminatory, in the sense that there are some kids that are receiving very good education, should promise, while the rest of the system doesn't have it. So they will want to see it given to other areas of the country. George, I want to ask you about some of the remarks made in the evaluation that make the LEAP program look sort of bad. Would you explain why the evaluators talked about mass expulsions of students from the LEAP schools? I mean, this is a real concern with this sort of back to our prescription taken and given question, because if the schools are actually expelling a bunch of weaker kids, well, that's a pretty quick route to putting up better test scores. So can you explain why they talked about mass expulsions? So after Ebola, as I said earlier, I went to ministry to the Ministry of Education after Ebola, and I went around the country assuring parents that it was safe for children to return to school. We partnered with USAID and others, UNICEF, to make sure that teachers were given training, parents were educated. So the response was huge. In fact, we did a school center with the World Bank and others. And after that, we realized that there was an uptick in enrollment across all schools in Liberia. And this resulted in double and triple shift schools which with increased class sizes and much shorter school days. So when we introduced the Partnership Schools for Liberia program, we knew that by lengthening the school day and capping class sizes, sometimes from 100 students to a teacher, to bringing it down to maybe between 45 and 65, we would be displacing students who need to find places in other schools. However, we also had serious concerns about overcrowding, and we knew it was crucial to test the impact of that with these interventions so that we could have sustained learning gains in the classroom. So the authors termed this mass expulsion, which to me is disingenuous and doesn't capture the full picture. So I certainly understand the logic behind it. If you have a school model, you don't want to implement it and then ruin it by implementing an incoherent version of that school model. But, Steve, of course, the question is, were the kids who were pushed out substantially different for the kids who were kept in? In other words, were the kids that got the prescription and took it substantially different from those who didn't actually take it? Yeah, it's the right question, and it's the reason to do the ITT analysis. And and one of the things the researchers determined the very first year was there were no differences in the initial skill set of the students who were displaced from the students who remained. And so they established that. The researchers aren't debating that at all. The curious thing about expulsion is the researchers, you, know, you got to give them credit. They want every kid to receive the best education possible. You know, they know that, hey, in these LEAP schools, kids are getting a better education. It is somewhat tragic whenever a kid has to go to a school that isn't the best possible school for that child. Sure. And so, you know, I, under, I understand that sentiment, but the quality of education 
wouldn't be possible at that level with overcrowded schools. And so there's this necessary tension. The solution, of course, is to expand LEAP throughout and, and to establish these constraints and just say, hey, school can't happen unless the conditions for schooling are set up in a way to support learning. And, and I think that's what they've learned. Yeah, and I, I think that this is something that needs to be considered and also we need to be explicit about. When we do an RCT like this, it often seems like, well, we have the treatment and the control and they are in a horse race. But that's not necessarily the case. We are trying with the treatment to see if a different course of action will actually cause benefits. And in this situation, the course of action is actually showing some benefits. If you just look on the treated, they're pretty remarkable benefits. But it's also a very different course of action. So it seems to me that it would follow that we're not, we don't support an implicit logic that leap schools are just better schools and better people and more well-intentioned and have some qualitative superiority to public schools. But no, we're just testing an intervention to see where progress might be found. That may be the strongest thing about this program is that these are the government teachers, the same government teachers that are in every other school. The possibility here, as George suggests, is uh, they, can, they can go to scale countrywide with current talent under better management and, and these conditions that support learning. I mean, 65 to 1 is a reasonable upper bound. Having kids in school for a seven-hour school day or an eight-hour school day is a reasonable length of time. To, to shorten these things or to increase the classroom size, that, that's unreasonable. That'll dilute the quality of the education. So there's arguably demand for more yeah. LEAP schools. Give me a sense of the scale. I mean, we're talking about Several hundred schools at this point, but what sort of rough percentage of Liberian students are we talking about? So the government is educating majority of students in Liberia in the public school system. So if you had 1.5 million children in school, around a million will be in public school. I was in London recently and I said to people, perhaps my greatest regret was I wasn't bored enough. If I were to find the money, I would put the entire early childhood and primary educational system under this partnership because we need to respect the button. Children are capable of learning, but the system continues to fail them. And in this experiment, we have found that it, it is possible. And so I would think that an ambitious program with the right amount of financing can get up to 1 million children in school and learning. Steve, let me ask about the cost. In talking about this a few years ago with some of the folks at Bridge, they were saying the cost is high. We are building sort of the infrastructure. There's lots of costs that go in. There's some argument about those things. But Bridge's own idea was we will bring these costs down over time to a manageable number. How has the cost structure changed over the past several years for Bridge? And let me just add, we're talking about very small numbers per student. So this is an immense challenge to bring something down to a cost point that can be brought to scale in a very poor country. Yeah, th this is an untold story. 
about the optimism around costs. I mean, when we start out, researchers estimated that that we were spending about $600 per child, a little bit more. This last report, they reported that we were spending about $160 per student. This is not Bridges reports. This is the research. This is the research. Evaluation. Evaluation. This is what the evaluation stated. The evaluation frame that is that's three times more than the government average rather than, oh, they're actually providing this credible path to sustainability. You know, when you cut when you cut costs by four x over three years, it suggests that what you were talking about in terms of startup costs is actually real. Our models show us as as we increase the number of schools, we'll drive this down to sixty dollars a kid. And so, you know, already in into year four, our costs are about one hundred and ten or so per child. So we're we're seeing those returns to economies of scale every single year that we add more schools. So the the researcher's number, let me just repeat this, was yeah. around $600 four years ago and is now down to a quarter of that. A quarter of that. That's, yeah. That is remarkable. And I have to ask that, Matt, the, when we asked Bridge to come in, we knew we had no books for our children to read at all levels, all grades, all subject matter. We knew we had no technology teachers were not introduced to that. So we were asking Bridge to enhance our curriculum in this. So Bridge had to print books. In fact, parents put a premium on uniform because it's probably the best piece of clothing the child has. I know from my own childhood that my uniform trousers were my best trousers ever. I wore it to church, I wore it to school. So Bridge provided all of these things at the beginning which, to me, explained the high cost in the beginning. But it's hard to explain these things unless people assume that we had books, we had uh, school infrastructure was safe. All of those things were not so in the beginning. So with time, as the program matures, you will see the cost drop. I read that bridge anticipates by year four that its cost would drop to around $103. Now, when we brought the providers in, the Liberian government was spending 50 US dollars per child. My question was, what would it look like if you doubled that 50, you added? So we had to raise an additional $50 through philanthropy to give to the providers so that we could say it can be sustained with around $100. So I, I am hopeful that this projected cost of 103 is around what is sustainable for the government. And for those who are interested in the bridge program, I'll just give a quick description of my understanding of it that I think is really remarkable. They provide teachers with a very low budget sort of iPad type device. It's old school, works on 3G $25. networks. $25. It costs $25 to make. But through this, they can both push curriculum out to teachers to systematize what is being taught. And they can also gather data on, for instance, whether the teacher with that device is actually at the school when they're supposed to be on that school. So there's management side and also curriculum delivery sides, which make a lot of sense given sort of the starting place of Liberian education challenges. 
Yeah, there's an improvement side to that as well, because we can track to what extent the curriculum is working to help students learn the content. So when we connect the, the curriculum to the tests, we can start to see where we need to strengthen our curriculum. And so it's, it's a really nice system. As we're closing down here, I'm, I'm interested. It's now in its fourth year. George, what do you think is the future of this project, which you started but is really in some other folks' hands? Well, let me acknowledge that designing, implementing, and continuing a program that was disrupting the status quo was hard. But you see, in the light of the conversation after the three-year study, I am bolstered by the knowledge that it serves as a model for high-quality education in government schools that can be scaled not only in Liberia or even just in Africa, but in any country around the world that is recovering from conflict or crisis or needs to rebuild its education system. So we in Africa, we need to, we need proving a meaningful partner to get to quality and equity in our government schools. And to me, that is not privatization. This is government leadership with a pragmatic solution. So as the program results, three-year program results have come out, I know the international community's interest may wane now that the study is done, but my interest and the interest of the Liberian government will never wane, neither with the interest of parents across Liberia. Our country has just delivered one of the most innovative public-private partnerships in the world, which, by the evaluator's own data, has successfully improved learning outcomes for tens and thousands of children. We hope the world will support partners who are in this program, Bridge and others, to continue to deliver quality and equitable education for children. George, Steve, thanks for coming on the report card to talk about the experience in Liberia with this LEAP experiment. And we'll wait a few years and have you back on to see where the next horizon takes us. My pleasure, Nat. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guests George Werner and Dr. Steve Cantrell. This episode wouldn't have been possible without our team of producers. That includes Matthew Rice, Nathan May, Tyler Hoover, and Gage Hurley at Liquid Media. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast player. We always welcome comments, questions, or topic suggestions, so drop us a line at ed.podcast at AEI.org. Signing off for this episode, I'm Nat Malkus.